Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. He's doing what was right, and he has done this throughout his entire career. Whether as mayor of Newark, who set that path on a city to uh, the, the greatest economic expansion in 50 years, or as a senator of New Jersey, where he's led the fight to help save Obamacare and protect the Mueller investigation from interference by the president, Cory Booker has always stood up for what he believes in. Now, as you know, it was a bit touch and go as to whether or not he would make it here tonight. But as soon as he cast his vote, he dashed off to the airport and flew right here to be with us all tonight. And so, please join me in welcoming our keynote speaker, Senator Cory Booker. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music of exits, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe of language I did not speak. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10. We did not know each other, and we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, Change their lives forever? Well, it didn't happen. Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Fellow Americans, it's time to speak out. They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their name. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. Children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much, and may God bless America. Hello, Democrats! Please, if you're, if you're controlling the lights, can you bring up the lights? I gotta see some folk today. I've been staring at a bunch of fellow senators and this is much more beautiful. <laughs> it's so good to see you all. I, I just wanna give a lot of love to Troy. I know his husband's here. He is doing an incredible job as a leader of this party a leader in this state, and I just want to give him a tremendous amount of love and thanks. So look, I, 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 uh, 
I was supposed to be here on Thursday in Iowa, and uh, there's an old saying, the best way to make God laugh is to make plans for yourself. Um, but the frustrating thing about this last week is I heard some laughter, but it wasn't from the Lord. Uh, I heard a president mock and laugh and jeer at a survivor for telling her story. I heard cheers and joy coming after a vote pushed a nominee forward. And as the days ticked by and we got closer and closer and I realized I wasn't going to be here Thursday, wasn't going to be here Friday, I, I decided to change some of what I wanted to share with you, especially when I knew what the outcome was going to be. Uh, I want to tell you a story because I know there's a lot of folks hurting right now. I know there's a lot of folks who are upset, a lot of folks who are angry. Even when I was walking through here, I had survivors come up to me and give me a hug and let me know what the fight meant to them, but that they were too hurting. I've had my Senate office flooded with calls from people who I don't know, who have never told anybody about their sexual assault, but at this point felt the need and the urgency, felt like Dr. Ford, that it was their civic duty to come forward. And tonight, I, I want to talk to all of us who feel hurt right now, who feel anger right now, who feel pain right now. And the story I really want to tell you is about the story of my beginning in politics. Uh, I grew up in the su suburbs of New Jersey, but when I was a law student, I, I decided to move to Newark, New Jersey. And I picked one of the toughest neighborhoods I could find. And I moved into that neighborhood and it was very difficult. Uh, there was uh, projects and abandoned structures. There was a 24-hour drug trade, a lot of shootings in that neighborhood. It was one of the more dangerous neighborhoods in a city that at that time had a very high level of violence. I, I still live in that neighborhood now. I'm the, the only United States Senator that lives in an inner city neighborhood uh, we're at below the poverty line in my community, people with a wealth of spirit, but we are about $14,000 per household according to the last census. Now we've made a lot of progress since I first moved there in the 1990s. It's been incredible. We've built public schools, we've built parks, we've brought in supermarkets to get rid of a food desert. I'm proud of the progress we made, but the story I want to tell you is about what happened when I moved there, because I really do believe that one definition of faith that's right is that when you come to the end of all the light you know and you're about to step into the darkness of new challenges that faith is knowing one of two things is going to happen either you're going to find solid ground underneath you or the universe will send you people who will teach you how to fly and so i jumped into this tough neighborhood and one of the first people i met was the tenant president of the projects a woman named miss virginia jones now i always say i got my ba at stanford but my phd on the streets of newark and she was one of my greatest life professors. This woman was incredible. And, and she was one of the reasons why I got into politics. I was a young lawyer helping out tenants who couldn't afford it. I was doing landlord-tenant law, but she's one of the people that told me, boy, you gotta run for city council. Now, I eventually ran for city council, one, moved into those buildings, and in the building I moved into back in the 80s, her son was murdered in those buildings. And here's this woman that she and I were two of the highest net worth earners in these projects, became public housing projects. She could have lived anywhere in the city, but she stayed in that building. So Miss Jones, when I asked her why would she stay, she looked at me bemused by the question. She goes, why do I stay here? I go, yes, Miss Jones. Why am I still on the fifth floor? I go, yes, Miss Jones. She goes, why am I still the tenant president? 
after all these years? Yes, Miss Jones. She goes, because I'm in charge of Homeland Security. <laughs> Here's this woman that had every reason she could have quit and given up. But she stayed in the fight. And then years later, I ran for mayor. I lost. It's four years till I run again. And it was during that time when I felt beaten. I felt upset about a political loss. I saw things happening in the city that were distressing me. And then one day I went for a walk and was in a neighborhood right when a shooting happened. And I ran to this boy's aid. And I, I, I get mad at the way we glorify violence. To see someone die from a gunshot wound is painful. It is jarring. It is a traumatic moment. I tried to stop this kid's bleeding, but blood was everywhere. And by the time the paramedics came, pushed me out of the way, I knew he was dead. And I remember that painful night, that night just of anger. And I was so angry and, and full of rage at at our nation, at how would we, all of us, Republicans and Democrats, agree on common sense gun safety that could save lives in cities like mine? How can we not get things done? And, and that night, I, I felt like giving up. I, I was done. I had lost an election. I was, I was frustrated. I felt like people didn't care. So many children were getting shot in my community across this country. And that morning, I woke up full of darkness and full of anger and full of rage and wanting to give up. And I came down in the elevator and I walked through that lobby where Miss Jones's son was murdered. And I get into the courtyard, it is early in the morning, and I stop in my tracks because right across the courtyard on the other side is Miss Virginia Jones. And her back is turned towards me and, and I just just stop in my tracks and stare at the back of her head and almost as if she heard my anguish, heard my pain, heard my struggling with a painful, difficult moment, she turns around and she sees me and she doesn't say a word. But she does exactly what I needed in that moment. This woman, five feet and a smidgen tall, she just looks at me across the courtyard and she just opens her arms. And I ran across that courtyard into her arms and she held me tight and I started crying and she held me and she repeated two words over and over again and these two words don't have anything to do with religion but everything to do with who we are these two words are not about a pie in the sky when you die they're about the here and now and how we live and how we struggle and how we give these two words became like a mantra to me on my toughest days in my next election for mayor. I repeated them on the hardest days in City Hall. I even say them to myself still on the Senate floor when I feel like I'm banging my head on an implacable wall of resistance. As I was in this woman's arms, as she was holding me, rubbing my back, she said over and over again these two words, stay faithful, stay faithful, stay faithful. short time from that vote till I flew here, my phone has filled up. I'm reviewing social media and I see the pain and the hurt, but I want to remind everyone here tonight, this room full of fellowship, this room full of faith, 
that this is a time in our country more than ever that we got to stay faithful in some fundamental things. And the first thing is to remember who we are. I was taught by my family that, that you cannot really be present or look to the future if you don't understand your past. If you don't have roots that go deep, it's hard to reach up and bear fruit. If we remember who we are and stay faithful to that, we will know who this country really is. You see, we're a nation different than everyone else on the planet Earth because we have the oldest constitutional democracy on the planet. We broke with the course of human events. We broke with the course of human events, and we said in this nation, we're not going to found this nation because we all pray the same. It's not a theocracy. We're not going to found this nation because we all look the same. We don't share a common ethnicity. We're not going to found this nation because we share, speak the same language or descend from the family tree. No, our founders knew that's not who we are. That we would be a nation that put forward values and ideals that would serve as light unto other nations, that we would be a nation that favors freedom and justice and equality. And don't get me wrong, I I'm not going to sort of whitewash and homogenize our founders. They were geniuses, but imperfect men. I know that our founding documents had some revelations about the bigotries and prejudice of the time. Native Americans in our Declaration of Independence are referred to as savages. Uh, 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 women aren't referred to at all. African-American slaves were considered fractions of human beings. Stokely Carmichael used to always say, constitute, constitute, I can only say three-fifths of the word. <laughs> but what our founders did is they founded this nation with ideals so powerful that every generation would be aspired to keep pushing and to keep fighting and to keep stretching to make this a more perfect union, more in line with those founding ideals. And what did that happen? What did that cause? Well, first and foremost, the founders understood the very idea of this nation was nothing if we did not have an unusual commitment to each other. Our founders knew that this nation would only be great if we found ways to commit to one another because we don't have those common bonds of ethnicity or race or religion. Other nations, you spin the globe, put your finger down, you'll see entire borders formed of other nations because of those tribalisms, those, those common ethnicities, those common religions. No, they knew if we were going to be bounded by ideals, we had to have a nation that fundamental to our values was a commitment to each other, shared sacrifice, common cause, and commitment to one another. That's why if you look at our founding documents and the spirit of that time, it was all about that collective common cause and commitment. We, the people, e pluribus unum, one nation under God, indivisible, and at that end of that Declaration of Independence, my favorite of all, the end of the Declaration of Independence is a declaration of interdependence, where they say if we're going to make it all work, if we're going to make it as a new country, we must mutually pledge, pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred bonds. I grew up with two parents that would not let me forget Boy, remember where you came from. My father wanted to tell me story after story about this American community.
commitment, one American to another. He wanted me to know that I got to where I am today because of millions of acts of personal citizenship, of private grace, of Americans helping Americans. He believed in rugged individualism and self-reliance, but he knew that rugged individualism didn't get us to the moon. Working together did that. He knew that here in Iowa, y'all know the story, Iowans came together and built cellars and tunnels, creating the greatest infrastructure project in America that ran right through this strait called the Underground Railroad. We did that together. And so you got to listen. This is my dad. My dad wants to tell me that story. So he says, boy, I, I, I was born in the mountains of North Carolina. I was born poor. And then he stopped. He would heckle me right now if he was here. Don't tell those people from Iowa I was poor. Tell them the truth. I was just po, P-O. I couldn't afford the other two letters. I was a po' boy from North Carolina. My dad liked to get, the older I got, the worse his childhood got. He's like, son, let me tell you about the time the tsunami hit my town. I'm like, dad, you're from the mountains of North Carolina. And he gets indignant. He's like, boy, it happened a long time ago before the internet. You can't look it up, but it happened. But that poor boy from North Carolina's mama and grandmama couldn't take care of him, and it was American citizens, not his blood, that took him in, put a roof over his head. It was American public schools that educated him. When, when he couldn't go to college, they took a collection and gave him money and told him, you're going to college so he could enroll in North Carolina Central University, a historically black college. And then he gets there, and what does he witness? A civil rights movement. You all know the story is that the, the, the sit-in movement started in Greensboro, North Carolina. My father watched black folks and white folks coming together. Folks getting on buses and doing freedom rides. Folks from Iowa going down south to do marches. My father said, that's how you got where you are. This unusual American commitment one to another. When my father got to Washington, D.C., where I was born, it was activists of every color, every background that got him his first job at IBM as their first black salesman ever hired in the, in, in the Virginia region. And, and then there's my mama. My mama tells me the same story. Look, when I was walking to get sworn in by Joe Biden, I was moving from one side of the Capitol to the other. It was just me and my mom because my dad died six days before I was elected. And my mom, she's on fire. She, she, this is, don't applaud my mom too much. She always embarrasses me. When somebody says something nice about me, she goes, well, behind every successful child is an astonished parent. I just can't believe it. <laughs> Kid wouldn't make his bed. And she starts telling the story. So here we are walking. I'm going to get sworn in by Joe Biden. And my mom is like, it's as if she's never going to see me again. She's like, boy, don't you forget where you came from. Don't you forget the struggles that had to get you here. Don't you forget that the title doesn't make the man. The man has got to make the title. And I'll tell you this. That admonition not to forget where you came from. I know my mom's story. I know her family. She was born to a woman, my grandma, who was born in Des Moines, Iowa. But that's not the great thing about my grandma and my family line. This is a family that started with a woman in Alabama named Adeline McDonald who moved her family up here. Nine children. Nine children. There are a bunch of people cheering back there because 
those nine children moved to a town called Buxton, Iowa, to be coal miners. And the reason why those tables are cheering is because I've got about 50 cousins here tonight, <laughs> all descendants of Buxton. And they are led, that whole delegation is led by a little woman sitting right next to my mom and my mom's brother, Uncle Butch, a little woman. I say little because she is the grand matriarch of my family, 99 years old, my Aunt Wama, Alma. 99 years old. Now, let me tell you, we are all descendants of Buxton. Remember where we came from. This is an Iowa story, this is an American story, and Buxton was ahead of its time. There's a book about Buxton, they call it a utopia. Why? Because black folks and European immigrants were all living together. They were living integrated. They went to school together. They went to social events together. And they were coal miners. And they went down in that coal miner together, black and white, digging out coal, hard jobs, union labor. And when they rose up from those coal mines, dirty and grimy from a hard day's work, they rose up. Like that Maya Angelou poem, may you may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dust, but still, like the dust, I rise. They rose till they were scorned. They rose till they were children of slaves. They rose till they were immigrants who were maligned and underestimate. But when they rose, they lifted their families out of poverty. When they rose with a good day of Godsy's hard work, fueled. State. They brought energy to the Midwest. They were committed to each other, black and white. There's a story about the coal miners in Buxton. When a, when a coal miner died, they didn't go to the funeral. They went back into the mine. And that day's hard work, where did that money go that day? It went to the widow, and it went to the children. This was an amazing town. There's a story about them doing quilts. Imagine this, far before integration became the law of the land, a bunch of folk, black and white, coming together with their scraps of cloth to do a quilting bee. Swedes and Slovaks and black folk all joining together, these women in a circle, stitching their individual cloths into a greater whole, stitching, pulling, stitching and pulling, those women knew what we must know now, that the lines that divide us are nowhere near as strong as the ties that bind us. We may be different in race, we may be different in religion, but when we come together and we stand together, we evidence a strength. This, this is our history, and it's how we got things done. That commitment to each other. I'm going to tell you all something. My grandma, my grandma, and my, she went on to marry a man from Louisiana. They moved the family to Detroit, where my mom was born. Again, union jobs. My grandfather worked in the factory. Ford Motor Plant raised a family on a factory job. And he got, and, and, and he was a Republican. Because all black folk were back then, it was the party of Lincoln. 
but he bragged until the day he died that he changed his party and changed 14 districts from Republican to Democrat. Why? Because the Democrats lived a value of commitment to one another. Why? Because we're Democrats. My grandfather knew it. This is the party that cares about every single person, black or white, Christian or Jewish. It's a party of values. It's a party of Medicaid and Medicare. It's a party of Social Security, our commitment to one another. It's a party of voting rights. It's a party of civil rights. It's a party of women's rights. It's a party of LGBTQ rights. It's a party of the Americans with Disabilities Act by Tom Harkin. It's the party of the environment. It's a party of we, not the party of me. It's a party of inclusion, not the party of exclusion. It's a party that believes someone who is nice to you but not nice to the waiter is not a nice person. It's a party that understands that we care about the people assembled in the hall, but we care about the people who will be here afterwards cleaning up and cleaning the bathrooms. That's who we are. We're the party that remembers who this nation is and how we got here. We know the African saying that says, if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. And we, Democrats, faithful to our history, have to now remember, if we're faithful to our history, we have to remember how change is made. Change is not made by us sitting there hoping things happen. Change is not made by waiting for Washington. We Democrats know that change never comes from Washington. It goes to Washington. You all know this, come on now. It was not, it was not a bunch of men in Washington that sat around one day and thought to themselves, yep, it's time for those women to have some voting rights. No, it was activists, black women and white women, and a whole bunch of allied men. You all know the truth. It, it, it wasn't one day, one day Strom Thurmond didn't wake up and say, yep, it's about time those Negro people have some civil rights. No, it was black folks and white folks coming together, marching and pushing and fighting and demanding change that's what we know, that's how change is made. And if we know our history, if we remember what we got here, if we know shared sacrifice, common cause, a commitment to one another, if we know change comes from communities and neighborhoods, then we know what Ms. Jones taught me, my great professor, this woman who taught me what hope is. Hope has nothing to do about the circumstances you see around you. Hope is not about suddenly you see a light in the distance, oh God, thank you for the hope. No. This woman whose son was murdered in the projects, she taught me that hope is the active conviction that despair will never have the last word. And so, I want to confess something to you. I, I got to confess something to you because I see a lot of folk who get caught up in a state of sedentary agitation, 
They're so upset about what's going on, but they don't do anything about it. I, I want to confess, sometimes that's me. I'm sitting home late at night watching Rachel, getting all upset with what she's saying. I want to give you another example. It was January 2016. I went up to hear a new president swear his oath. And, and I thought maybe, maybe, possibly, I'm going to hear great words from, from generations past. Maybe like Lincoln's inaugural address, it'll be with malice towards none, with charity towards all. But no, there was a whole lot of malice and very little charity. Literally, as we're getting off, President George Bush, it was such a speech of American carnage, so outrageous. My head was throbbing as I'm leaving. The presidents get up and leave before us. And this is a presidential quote here, so don't get mad at me for cursing, but President George Bush turns to President Bill Clinton and goes, that was some strange shit. <laughs> and this is my confession. I go home that night and I curl up in a ball. My head is throbbing. I have a little basement apartment and I curl up. But hope is the active conviction that despair will never have the last word. And the next morning, as if the spirit of Miss Jones was all over this country, women from coast to coast, from the Great Lakes to the Gulf Coast, got up and said, Cory Booker, get out of that bed. This is not a time to curl up. It is not a time to shut up. It is not a time to give up. It's a time to get up, to rise up to speak up. It's time for you not to wait for hope, but to be the hope. And I want to tell you this. Y'all, I got to tell you this one. I remember the day, one of my favorite moments as an American citizen when they did the Muslim ban. I tell you, this was a president who talked about a Muslim registry. And then one of his early acts was the first Muslim ban. My chief of staff calls me up and says, get out to Dulles Airport now. They're detaining Muslim families from other countries, and they're not letting them have lawyers. I raced to Dulles Airport, and I came into the concourse, and it was full of Americans, hundreds that were there, chanting patriotic songs, cheering people. As Muslim families left, as if Abraham was welcoming angels in the desert, when Muslim families came off of that plane, out of detention and walked through, the crowd erupted and cheered them. There were guys in yarmulkes and sitzas cheering Muslim families coming into our country. That is what America looks like. Now listen, I go back to the Senate floor and I'm like, I see Joe Donnelly and I'm so moved. I go, Joe, you gotta listen to what happened. And Joe's like, oh my God, the same thing happened to me. I went to Indianapolis airport and there it was, all of us there, hundreds of people and we were cheering and singing songs and every flight that came in, we just hugged folk except for Corey. We had no international flights. It was just a whole bunch of people cheering folks from Detroit. <laughs> we're just like, we're Americans, this isn't who we are. Carrie and Carolyn Booker, my parents, told me, Corey, you're going to encounter people who hate you for the worst reasons. You're going to encounter people that scorn you. You're going to encounter circumstances that are terrible, but 
You are never defined in life by what happens to you. You're defined by how you respond. And Iowa Democrats, my friends, that's what this gathering is about. It's about remembering our commitment to each other, remembering our common cause, remembering the ideals of shared sacrifice, remembering how change is made, and remembering that we're not defined by what's happened in this state, by Republicans in power, we're defined by how we respond. And so when they cut Planned Parenthood, when they work to privatize Medicaid, when they come after public workers, when they come after public schools, when they come after public school teachers, when they come after health care, we're not defined by that. We're defined by what we do. And when we elect Hubble and Hart, we will show America who we are. We're not defined by the hardship that are facing farmers with corporate consolidation. We're not defined by the games going on with public dollars. But when we elect Gannon and when we elect Sand, we tell the nation who we are. And I'm going to tell you this. We're not defined by a president who mocks a hero in Dr. Blasey Ford. We're not defined. We're not defined by a president who does not believe women. We're going to be defined when this state not only says that we believe women, but we elect women. We elect Tajir. We elect Finkenauer. We elect Axney. We're sending them to join Lobsack. That's how we're defined. And so I want to tell you all, I want to end with this. I want to end with this because so many people, they don't understand their power. They fall into this trap that Alice Walker talked about. The most common way people give up their power is not realizing they have it in the first place. Every single one of us has so much more power than we know woman in the project says that she is in charge of homeland security. She doesn't allow her an inability to do everything, to undermine her determination to do something. She was a woman that understood those 10 two-letter words that nothing's going to change unless I do. If it is to be, it is up to me. She understood that you can't expect the world to change if you don't. She understood the history of individual Americans making an extraordinary difference. That's where I want to end with this story. It's about the power we all have. Even in the face of a defeat, we can never be defeated. Even when we're knocked down, we have to understand that we are never knocked out. Even though we have so much pain, it can never stop our perseverance. My parents, Carrie and Carolyn Booker, like all Americans, they had humble dreams. When my dad got that job with IBM, you know, folk helped open the door, but he had to compete and he succeeded. Top 5% of their global sales. When my mom joined him with the company and he gets promoted to the New York City office right there on Madison Avenue. 
and they had to start looking for places to live. And so they looked around to, to find Connecticut, New York, New Jersey. They decided to look in the suburbs of New Jersey. But every time they would show up in towns with the best public schools, they would go to the house and they would be told, I'm sorry, this house is sold. It's because they were white communities and we were a black family. Now my mom, you got to talk to her after this. She's a stubborn woman. Trust me, she is. She wasn't going to give up in the face of that. She looked around like all Americans do. We have a common cause. We have a commitment to one another. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And when she looked around, she found American citizens, not famous folk, not folk in Washington, ordinary folk. A woman named Miss Lee Porter, who was a head, young woman who was the head of the Fair Housing Council then in the 1960s. And, and she said, we're going to organize. We've got these great lawyers. They're going to help us set up a sting operation. And so when my parents would go look at a house, they would be told by the real estate agent, oh, I'm sorry, this house is sold, or it's pulled off the market. And my parents would leave, and then a volunteer white couple would come and look at the house, and they'd be like, oh, Mr. and Mrs. White, this is a great house. <laughs> One day my parents looked at this one house and they loved it instantly in the town that I would grow up in. They were so excited about the house, but again they were told, I'm sorry, this house is sold or pulled off the market. And they left and the sting operation set up by the lawyers, the, the couple came right in and they were told it was for sale. And the couple had been instructed to make a bid on the house, a proxy bid for my parents. So they put a bid on the house and the bid was accepted. And, 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 and the, the papers were drawn up. And a closing date was set at the real estate agent's office, but this time the white couple didn't show up. My father did and a volunteer lawyer. And they walked into the real estate agent's office and confronted the real estate agent, told him the lawyer had a speech rehearsed, said you're in violation of New Jersey fair housing law, and the, and, 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 and the real estate agent was shocked to see he had been caught, but he didn't give up, he didn't capitulate. He stands up and punches my dad's lawyer in the face. And then he sigs a dog on my dad. Now let me tell you, every time as I was growing up that my dad would tell that story, the dog would get bigger. <laughs> Eventually as I'm a, you know, 18 year old going off to college, my dad would be like, boy, I had to fight a pack of wolves to get you in this house. You better appreciate what you got. I would graduate from high school, go to college, go to overseas to study, come back to law school. My, my parents weren't impressed. My dad was like, boy, you got more degrees in the month of July, but you ain't hot. <laughs> it's not the degrees that you get, it's the service that you give. So I moved to Newark, New Jersey. That city that I didn't grow up in put their faith in me. They elected me to their city councilman. They eventually elected me their mayor. And then after almost eight years of working in a great city, turning around its economy, working with great heroes who taught me more than any university could, the state of New Jersey sent me to Washington. And I was elected in a special election. Father died in October, sworn in in October. This month was the 50 years since I've been elected. And I got there and I, I wanted to tell the story of our country. I, I wrote a book called United, calling to the greatest ideals of our country. I, I wanted to write a, a story about 
the patriotism, and patriotism is love of country, and you cannot love your country unless you love your fellow country men and women. And all folks, we Democrats can never be pulled down so low that we hate folks. We can't hate Republicans. We need each other as Americans. We've got to lead with love. You can't lead the people if you don't love the people. All the people. Well, I wanted to write the story, but if you have a father like mine, you've got to fact check everything. And so I had to go back and find out how big was the dog. <laughs> and so I go back looking around, and I, I find the head of the Fair Housing Council from the 1960s, Miss Lee Porter, because she was easy to find. She's 92 years old now, and she is still head of the Fair Housing Council in northern New Jersey. And, and I find this woman, and I'm not joking, I get on my knees, and I thank her, and we have this great meeting. I just saw her a few weeks ago, and I say, I got to know these lawyers. Who are they? And they, she sent me to this lawyer who organized all the lawyers, a man named Arthur Lessman. And this is the point of the story. I talked to Arthur Lessman. He confirms the size of the dog, and, 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 and he tells the whole story. But I asked him why. Why did he help black families moving into his neighborhood? Why would he do that when he was just starting a business? Why? And he goes, Corey, I remember the moment I made the decision. I was sitting home on a Sunday evening, comfortable and relaxed, watching TV back when we only had three channels, y'all. And he's watching a movie that most of America was watching that night. It was called Judgment at Nuremberg. But then something happened that doesn't happen a lot. They moved away from the story to breaking news. He said, suddenly he's sitting there in Jersey and they move away from the movie to show a bridge in Alabama. And, and, and there were these folk who had started marching in Selma, trying to get to the Capitol in Montgomery, and they got stopped on that bridge by Alabama state troopers. And he said, Corey, I watched in horror. As these folks stopped, they were going to turn around. One of those people on that bridge is my colleague now. And, 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 and he, he was going to, they were going to, the colleague John Lewis told me they were gonna about to go down and pray, but then those Alabama state troopers gassed those marchers. They shot tear gas at them. And then they rushed in with billy clubs and started banging away at people's bodies and people's skulls. John Lewis said to me very humbly, I, I shed a little bit of blood on that bridge. Well, well, his head was cracked open. He was knocked unconscious. Arthur Lessman on that couch said he was looking at horror at what was going on. He could not believe that this was his country. He knew the ideals of this nation, the preciousness of the dream. He knew, in essence, what, what a great poet Langston Hughes wrote when he said, there's a dream in this land with its back against the wall to save the dream for one. We must save the dream for all. And so he got up off that couch there was no sedentary agitation. He went to work. He called around to see who needed a little bit of volunteer work. He couldn't do everything, but he didn't allow his inability to do everything to undermine his determination to do something. And he called around and he found this young woman named Miss Lee Porter. It was 1965. And Miss Lee Porter says, oh, thank you, thank you. I need help. And the two of them started working and scheming. And four years later, 1969, Months after I was born, he said he got this case file with two names on it, Carrie and Carolyn Booker. And he went to work on my family. Think about this for a second. 
What is that chain reaction from people on a bridge who were defeated that day? They had a failure that day. They had their hearts broken that day. They were pushed back that day. But just because they stood up to what, for what was right, just because they stood up in an act of grace and citizenship and patriotism, just because they stood up in the name of love, they released an energy that instantaneously leapt a thousand miles and changed the heart of one man on a couch in New Jersey who would then go on and change the outcome for a generation not yet born. That is power, and we all have that power, that power of love, the most durable force in the universe, that power of love, the most democratized force there is. So I end with this day. Last night I was on the Senate floor, and I decided to go back to that bridge in Alabama. And these were the words I ended my speech on the Senate floor last night, knowing that we would face defeat on this day. I wanted to go back to that bridge and those marchers who were stopped. I wanted to tell the Senate and the world and the historical record about what it means to face a defeat, to have anguish and pain. And I decided to take the words that were spoken not on that day when people were beaten and gassed, but weeks later they eventually made it over that bridge. They made it to the Capitol in Montgomery, and a king stood up to address the crowd. This would be a long time before civil rights legislation would be passed, but this man stood up to weary travelers who had marched dozens and dozens of miles. And Martin Luther King spoke these words. He said, I know what you're asking today. How long will it take? I know folks are asking, how long will prejudice bind us? I know what you're asking today. Folk are asking, how long will justice be crucified? And the truth has to bear it. I know you're asking how long, but I want to tell you today, how long? Not long. Because the truth crushed to the earth will rise again. How long? Not long. Because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long. Because you will reap what you sow. How long? Not long. Because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And so, my fellow Americans, I ask you all who've been fighting so long, who've had to endure pain and hardship, I ask you how long until we know the tide of division and despair will subset? How long will we respond to their hatred with love? How long will it take? Well, I'm going to tell you not long now. I want you to know not long because it's not long until November. How long? Not long until we elect a governor in this state who will stand up for women, who will stand up for Planned Parenthood, 
who will stand up for public education. How long? Not long until we elect people who represent all the people, not just the fortunate few. How long? Not long until we not only believe women, but elect some great women to Congress. How long? Not long until we flip the State House and the State Senate. How long? Until we take back the House of Representatives. How long? Until we answer the president's hate with our universal love. How long? Because it's almost November. And if we stand together and work together and struggle together and love each other like brothers and sisters, then justice will roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Let's go. 31 days left. How long? Amen. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. And I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, you and nobody, nobody gonna hit as hard as fight. Ask not. Yes, we can. What your country can do for you. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. But it ain't about how hard you get. It's about how hard you get and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Yes, we can. I wanted to run out of that tunnel. For my dad. To prove to everyone what? Access America. Yes, we can. On SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and now Facebook. Public Access, Public America. Access America. History in the History making. In the making. 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 History in the making. In the making.